Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off last time with the history of cosmology. So to recap what we covered last time, we saw how from the ancient world through classical antiquity in the Middle Ages, right on up to the scientific revolution, our concept of the universe, it grew by several orders of magnitude. It changed immensely. We went from believing that the world was a flat surface or something held up by pillars, a ziggurat, a box-shaped object, depending upon the cosmological tradition you're referring to, to a sphere adrift in space orbited by other spheres in one great big system governed by universal laws. And by the time of Copernicus, we had come to learn at last that the Earth was not the center of it all, that the Sun was. And from there, we then learned that our Sun was merely one of millions and then billions of suns that were adrift in our galaxy. And where we left off... In the 19th century, humanity was now on the verge of realizing that our galaxy was one of countless galaxies in the universe, and thanks to Einstein, we are on the verge of another major breakthrough, where he, like his predecessors, Copernicus, Newton, and Galileo, synthesized so much knowledge that had been accumulated up until that point to show how it all fit together. And this would come in the form of his theories of relativity which represented a significant challenge to Newtonian mechanics, which had remained canon for about 200 years. But by the 19th and early 20th centuries, we're running into a lot of problems. Now, to break it down, classical Newtonian mechanics essentially stated that the laws of physics were the same in all inertial reference frames, that time and space were both absolute and separate and it described gravity as an action at a distance, where two objects with mass will feel a gravitational attraction to each other, the strength of which is determined by the mass and the distance, but it is felt instantaneously between the two regardless of distance. Another key factor in Newton's model of the universe was the idea of relativity, and contrary to what many suspect or have been led to believe, it was Galileo who originally proposed this term, and it was his way of explaining how motion and velocity were actually relative to the observer based on their own moving reference frame. And this explained how an observer on Earth, being unaware that they are moving, will think that other objects that appear to be moving around them that they alone are moving, and they, the observer, and the planet they're standing on is standing still. But as Copernicus and Galileo further demonstrated, Earth is moving, its rotation is why the stars are passing through the night sky, 
and our motion relative to the other planets is why they have the appearance of retrograde motion, or they appear to be speeding up and slowing down during certain times of the year. And Galileo liked to illustrate this with his ship-at-sea metaphor. If you're on the deck of a ship and it's moving along at a consistent speed, you won't be aware that you are moving. If you drop a ball on the deck, it falls straight down relative to you. If you drop the ball off the side of the deck, though, from a person who's standing on the shore, it will look like the ball is falling in a arc or a parabola, meaning that it's still traveling forward as it's falling down. And if the person on the ship or on the shore, if it were pitch black and they could only see each other because they're both holding a lantern and the person on the ship didn't even know they're on a ship, as far as they could tell, the person on the shore holding the light would be the one that was moving and it was, and they were the one standing still. But by the 20th century, problems began to emerge in this. As astronomers were looking farther and farther beyond the solar system and learning the true extent of the Milky Way and the fact that there are other galaxies, and even within the solar system itself, Newton's theories of gravity began to encounter problems. Similarly, Newton's theories could not explain electromagnetic behavior. Scientists had learned at this point by measuring electric current that electricity and magnetism were a single phenomenon, hence the term electromagnetism. They also learned that light was an electromagnetic phenomenon, and that light itself may not be a wave, but it may be composed of particles, particles that behaved in packets of energy rather than a consistent stream, and this gave rise to the term quanta. And they'd even measured the speed of light and determined that it was the same as electromagnetic phenomenon, roughly 300 million meters per second, so extremely fast. They'd also learned at this point that this was an absolute. Nothing in nature moved fast as light did. However, all evidence still suggested that when measuring light, measuring its propagation through space, it behaved like a wave. And one thing that did not make sense, as far as their experiments were concerned, was its speed was constant. It didn't matter if the light source you were looking at was moving towards you or moving away from you, the speed remained the same as measured by the observer. Now this contradicted relativity because relativity essentially stated that if a distant object is moving, the time that it takes for the light to reach you, your whole perception of their velocity, it should be affected. If the object's getting closer, the light appears to be moving faster. If it's getting farther away, it appears to be moving slower. And why? Because it's taking longer to reach you. And yet, all the experiments said, this does not apply. Light reaches the observer regardless of the motion of the source, regardless of the motion of the observer, no matter what. So scientists were hard-pressed to explain this, and they began looking for explanations in the form of space itself. They said, if light is in fact a wave, and that's certainly how it seems to behave most of the time, and it's traveling through space, then it needs a medium to propagate through. Maybe that medium, the ether of space, or the luminiferous ether, as they called it, maybe it is speeding light up or slowing it down, and we need to measure that influence. If we can figure out how the ether works and we can explain all this in our physical cosmological models, they'll all make sense. 
Unfortunately, all the experiments failed to find any influence of an ether. And in 1905, Einstein would come along and offer an explanation that managed to synthesize a lot of other theories and a lot of other experimental results, and basically said, the experiments are correct, the data is accurate. What we're looking at here is not an effect of space, but perhaps time. And this was based in part on Lorentz transformations, or the work of Dutch physicist Henrik Lorentz. Now, curiously, Lorentz was also looking at something that Galileo had done pioneering work in, which was the concept of Galilean transformation. Basically, this transformation, it describes how objects moving through space are also moving through time, but it has within it this presumption that the experience, the passage of time, is the same for every observer everywhere, and that motion is what is relative, that Whereas two objects can be moving in different directions and therefore perceive each other's motion as different than how it would look if one of them were in a resting frame, their experience of time is identical. However, Lorentz transformations began to consider how, in an accelerating reference frame, two objects can have different perceptions of time, and that how in that accelerating reference frame, things get sort of compacted along the line of travel, or in the direction of travel. And this specifically applied in his Lorentz transformations to the behavior of light. Einstein was able to resolve and synthesize all this with his field equations, and as always, his use of very helpful, clear metaphors. Much like Galileo had done with his ship, Einstein used the example of a train. Now, if a person on a train is holding a series of mirrors and light is bouncing up and down, say in a vertical direction for this person, if they could slow the passage of time to the point where they could see the photons themselves moving, they would see these photons bouncing up and down at a consistent speed of 300 million meters per second. Now, to an observer who's watching this train go by, they would see the light bouncing up and down, yes, but the forward motion would mean that the light looked like it was moving in a zigzag pattern. But this is not possible from the point of view of the person on the train. The light is bouncing back and forth instantaneously. So if the mirrors are moving and the light has to zigzag to keep up with them, something has to give. There has to be something that allows the light to catch up for both of these observers to both obtain the same results. And this Einstein explained, well, if they could check their watches, the observer on the train would notice that his watch was running just a little bit slower than the person observing from out in the field, beside the tracks. In short, the speed of light, as Einstein would then say, is the same in all inertial reference frames, regardless of the observer and their relative motion. The speed of light does not change. Our perception of time does. If you put it another way, let's use two spaceship. If they're both in space, traveling towards the same star, but one of them is moving at a very slow velocity consistently, while the other is accelerating towards the speed of light, and they get up to say, a fraction of the speed of light. Now, they will both record the exact same speed from that oncoming light. There will be no difference. But 
the spacecraft that's accelerating, they're going to notice that the amount of time that has passed for them relative to the other ship was shorter. But because energy is never lost in the system, Einstein began looking at this in its equation form, and he thought, well, if time is lost in this accelerating reference frame, then that seems like a loss of energy too. So if we plot E, energy, and using the same Newtonian formula for calculating force, mass times acceleration, he said E equals mass times acceleration towards the speed of light. So E equals mc squared. And there were a number of consequences to this, because it showed that for objects approaching the speed of light, their mass, their feeling of mass, their inertial mass, will get heavier as they approach it. And so it takes more and more energy to accelerate them further, and the speed of light cannot be reached or passed because it would take infinite energy to do that, and by the time they reached it, the object would have achieved infinite mass, and this is physically impossible. So, it all seemed to balance out. But another very cool consequence of this was scientists were looking at it and they said, now hold on, if you just swap around some of these parameters, it all works out the same. So energy and mass here are interchangeable in this equation, which means that there is equivalency between energy and mass. And Einstein argued this in the form of the mass-energy equivalence. Basically, mass is just stable energy. Another very interesting consequence was he was also basically asserting that time and space were equivalent. They were separate expressions of the same thing. So whereas in Newtonian physics, time and space were absolutes and separate, Einstein demonstrated that they are in fact part of the same reality. They are not absolute, they are relative to the observer. So instead of space coming down to three dimensions, x, y, and z, and time, as a separate dimension, t, space-time can be described as four-dimensional. So physicists immediately were drawn to this theory, which Einstein called his special theory of relativity, because it not only meant that their observations and the experimental results they got were correct, there was no strange mystery or missing ether in order to explain their observations, it also resolved classical Newtonian mechanics with Maxwell's equations of electrodynamics. And so, for the next ten years, Einstein would expand on this, and he would put the finishing touches on it by about 1915-1916, because he wanted to account for gravity as well, which, as I said, scientists were beginning to have some troubles with. So, from his special relativity paper, he drew a lesson that Maybe Newton was wrong. He described gravity as action at a distance, an instantaneous one, but special relativity demonstrated that nothing in the universe is instantaneous. It travels at a limited speed, the speed of light, still extremely fast, but over cosmic distances, it takes its time. And so he began rethinking gravity. First of all, Einstein took a page from all the recent developments in the field of electromagnetism, and he considered whether or not gravity was in fact a field. It wasn't a direct pull by objects, but rather something that was generated locally by objects with mass. 
And another thing was the idea that gravity could travel instantaneously or be felt instantaneously between one object and the next. Special relativity had shown that in our universe, nothing exceeds the speed of light. Information in our universe is restricted to that speed. So he also began to toy with the idea that gravity itself was subject to the speed of light. Second, he began looking into how gravity and acceleration were likely related. Because, as scientists had come to realize at this point, there really is no distinction between gravity and acceleration. So for an accelerating object, anybody inside that object, they're going to feel a push. The moment you accelerate, you get pushed back in the opposite direction of travel. And for this, Einstein used a really brilliant metaphor, the elevator. So if you're standing in an elevator and it's perfectly still, you feel no sense of motion. When it starts to move, you'll feel a bit of a jolt, depending on the direction you're going. But as the elevator achieves a consistent speed, you'll no longer be aware that you're moving. You'll feel just comfortable and you'll see the numbers changing, but if they weren't there, you'd have no way of knowing. On the other hand, if someone were to cut the cable of that elevator, you'd begin to fall very quickly and you'd feel weightless because gravity is now pulling you down very, very fast. And for the person inside the elevator, that cancels out the sensation of gravity. You're now basically in free fall as this elevator goes hurtling to the ground. And as Einstein demonstrated with special relativity, acceleration alters the perception of time. So Einstein began to wonder if gravity was not an action at a distance, but a local action. Something that is imparted by massive objects on space-time around them. And so if we were to visualize it, if we were to look at space-time as a two-dimensional plane or a flat sheet, then wherever there's a massive object, like a planet or a moon or a star, you then have a sort of dimple effect in the surrounding space-time. So the curvature of space-time is altered by the presence of a large gravitational field caused by massive objects. And for objects that fall into this field, their perception of time is altered because gravity is imparting acceleration on them. It's causing them to speed up. And furthermore, that in and around this bent space-time, anything that is falling towards it, it will be tracing the curvature of that space-time. And so when he applied this and the necessary mathematics to the universe, suddenly all the observations that didn't match with Newtonian physics made sense. In particular, Mercury's orbit around the Sun. Scientists had noted that Newtonian mechanics don't account for its long-term orbit, but if we apply Einstein's theory, which was now known as general relativity, then it does. It works out. It comes down to the fact that gravity is pretty much as Newton described it there. It's a force. It's calculable. It's dependent upon mass, but it is not instantaneous, and it's not just two objects pulling at each other. It's objects altering the very fabric of space-time around them. And Einstein summarized this by saying that matter tells space-time how to curve, curve space-time tells matter how to behave. And since 1915, general relativity has been tested nine ways from Sunday, and it always, and it was always verified. Astronomers have noticed that if you 
observe large massive objects in space than objects that are behind them that should be obscured by them, you can actually see the light coming from them because it traces the curvature of that space-time and appears as if it's next to these massive objects. In fact, there's several terms for this. Depending upon how the light appears, it can be known as an Einstein ring, an Einstein cross, which are all different types of gravitational lenses. Another key test that proved that Einstein was correct was the use of atomic clocks in space. These clocks would be perfectly synchronized and coordinated with clocks down on Earth. They'd then be sent to orbit, to varying degrees of orbit, at greater and greater distances from the planet, and then their operators would compare what time they had, and they noted that clocks on Earth run faster than clocks on space, and the further away they are from Earth, the faster they will run. However, general relativity would end up having some very serious implications, which Einstein wasn't too fond of. Beginning in 1917, there was what was known as the Great Debate between astronomers, cosmologists, and astrophysicists about the structure of the universe. This coincided with the fact that astronomers were once again looking at what were thought to be nebulas within our Milky Way, and were suggesting that they were in fact galaxies beyond it, and that the Milky Way was merely one of several galaxies in the universe. And improved telescopes allowed for astronomers to confirm this for the first time. Between 1923 and 1924, famed astronomer Edwin Hubble, he used Cepheid variables, which are stars that change in brightness over time. And this characteristic has allowed astronomers to use them to measure cosmic distances. Now, Hubble identified several of these types of stars in the Andromeda galaxy, and the distance measurements he got confirmed that they were positioned far beyond the edge of the Milky Way. Therefore, they couldn't be nebulas within our galaxy. They were other galaxies beyond it. Another important aspect of the Great Debate was was that if Einstein's theories were to be believed, then the universe would need to be in a state of recession. All this gravity of all these massive objects would be pulling everything closer and closer together until it eventually went crunch. And the fact that there was no indication that that was happening meant that there must be something else at work. And Einstein proposed a theory which was the cosmological constant. And this was the idea that there was a force in the universe that acted against gravity and kept everything in a static, stable state. And where some physicists, including Einstein himself, argued for this steady-state model of the cosmos, others speculated that depending on the value of the cosmological constant, the universe could in fact be expanding. And between 1927 and 1929, both Edward Lemaitre and Edwin Hubble made a key discovery that settled that debate. Using spectrometers, they were able to measure the wavelengths of light coming from distant galaxies. And what they noticed was that those closest to us, the light coming from them was shifted towards the blue end of the spectrum, whereas with all other galaxies beyond a certain distance, any galaxy that was not closest to our own, the light coming from them was red-shifted. And in accordance with special relativity... Light does not speed up or slow down depending upon the motion of the source, but if the space between the source and the observer is expanding, then the wavelength of light itself will expand. And this is what happens with redshift. 
Red light has a longer wavelength than blue light, and so objects moving away will be red-shifted. Those moving closer to us will be blue-shifted. And this gave rise to what's known as Hubble's Law, or the Hubble-Lemaitre Law, which states that the universe is in a state of expansion. Einstein initially didn't like this idea, but when Hubble invited him to his observatory and showed him firsthand that the redshift measurements didn't lie, Einstein dropped the cosmological constant and said, biggest mistake of my career. However, the important takeaway was the universe is in fact expanding, and from that, Lemaitre proposed that, well, if the universe is expanding outwards, at some point it had to have been in a much smaller volume of space. And if we trace that backwards, it would mean that the universe began from a single point. And this is where the camps really began to form, because now you had people on one side arguing that the universe began from a single point in space and time, where all matter and energy were compressed down to a single point, and then from there began expanding outwards. And those who believe that the universe was in a steady state, with new galaxies and stars being created all the time, and the former theory was derisively named the Big Bang Theory. And even though it was meant to be a joke, the name stuck. And Lemaitre himself was accused of letting his own religious feelings, because he was in fact a priest as well as a physicist, he was accused of letting these intrude on his scientific theories. But by the 1960s, the discovery of the cosmic microwave background ended that debate. And the reason for that is because scientists knew that if the universe began from an initial point in space that was really tiny and dense and then exploded outwards and began expanding, there would be some kind of relic radiation, primordial light somewhere out there, and its distance from us, the observers, would correspond to the age of the universe because it's traveling at the speed of light. If the universe has been around for umpteen billion years, we would see this relic radiation umpteen billion light years away. And that's precisely what happened with the cosmic microwave background. By the 1960s, microwave telescopes, they detected a faint, persistent background hum, which once they were able to resolve it, they noted that, yes, there is microwave energy at a distance of roughly 14 billion years in all directions from us. And the reason it appears in the microwave spectrum is because that light, it's been so redshifted over time because of the expansion of the universe, it's no longer visible to us. This not only settled the debate largely between the steady state hypothesis and the Big Bang Theory, but it also led to increasingly accurate ages of the universe. Today, astronomers have constrained it to 13.8 billion years, plus or minus a few hundred eons, and that's based on increasingly accurate resolutions of the cosmic microwave background. So another thing that was taking place during the 1960s, it was known as the Golden Age of General Relativity. At this point, astronomers had instruments sophisticated enough to see countless galaxies, and not just in optical telescopes, but in non-visible wavelengths like the radio spectrum, the microwave spectrum, the ultraviolet and x-ray spectrum. And they were able to test general relativity at this point at the largest of scales. And this is when problems began, because astronomers noted when they were observing the rotational curves of other galaxies, basically they said these galaxies are moving too fast, 
and the effect they have on light that is bending around them, around their massive bodies, it's greater than anything suggested by what we can see. There's not enough visible matter there to account for their behavior. And so, this led to general relativity being seriously questioned. And given that general relativity has to this day been confirmed nine ways from Sunday, astronomers began to speculate that in addition to visible matter that we see, which is either emitting light or reflecting it, absorbing it, radiating it, that there must be some mysterious invisible mass out there as well. And this gave rise to the term dark matter. And according to their calculations, astrophysicists estimated that dark matter must account for 85% of the matter in the known universe. So once again, the predominantly held cosmological models of the universe, they shed their skin and they began to incorporate new theories, new ideas. In this particular case, it was that if dark matter exists today, well, it must have always been there because it's a key part of gravitation. It must have played a role in galactic evolution. Today, scientists believe that, in fact, dark matter was there from the very beginning, and it played a key role in the formation of the earliest galaxies, and it's gone on to do so ever since. It forms the halo, which caused all the neutral hydrogen in the early universe to fall in, collapse and form the first stars, and gather together to form the first galaxies. And over time, this has held galaxies together. And another very interesting discovery that happened about a decade later it was the realization that the massive radio source that was coming from the center of our galaxy, which was known as Sagittarius A, with a little star affixed to it, that this massive radio source could actually be a supermassive black hole. This was another benefit of the golden age of general relativity. Scientists were able to confirm the presence of black holes, which had been proposed in the early 20th century as a interpretation of Einstein's field equations. Basically, scientists speculated that there could be an object so massive that the effect it had on space-time that would alter the curvature of space-time to the point of infinity, at which point this pocket of space-time, time would stop, and this would be the result of massive stars undergoing gravitational collapse at the end of their lives, but instead of going supernova, shedding off their outer layers and becoming a white dwarf, they instead would collapse to form a black hole. And now, by the 1970s and thereafter, astronomers and astrophysicists now had evidence that at the center of all major galaxies there are supermassive black holes, which also would have been there during the early universe, gradually grown over time, and this too would have had an effect on galactic evolution. Well, as if that wasn't confusing and challenging enough, by the 1990s, Hubble took to space and began taking the deepest images of the universe yet, and part of its mission was to investigate the mystery of dark matter, of general relativity on the largest of scales, and to really discern how the universe evolved ever since the Big Bang. Prior to Hubble, astronomers had been limited in what they could see. They could only really see a few billion years back in time. But with Hubble and the deep fields and then the ultra-deep fields, we not only got a much better idea of just how many galaxies there are out there, 
which at the time was estimated to 200 billion. But scientists also noted another curious phenomenon that indicated that perhaps our notions of gravity were wrong. And that is the fact that during the past 4 billion years, the universe has been expanding at an accelerating rate and pushing the boundaries of astrophysics, looking back as early as we possibly can. Scientists noted that immediately after the Big Bang, there was an expansion which seemed to slow and then began to pick up speed again. And from that point onward, it seemed relatively consistent. The universe was expanding at a relatively consistent rate, faster than the speed of light, yes, but it didn't appear to be picking up speed. Whereas roughly 10 billion years after the Big Bang, suddenly it started moving faster. And so this led to speculation that in addition to there being a mysterious form of mass out there that we couldn't account for, there was also a mysterious energy. This gave rise to the notion of dark energy. And according to current theories and calculations, it's estimated that roughly 72% of the total mass energy density of the universe is made up of dark energy. That's opposed to mass alone. In the same scheme, dark matter makes up 23%, whereas visible or normal matter makes up only 46 And so this has led to yet another debate in which general relativity is either wrong, giving rise to alternative forms of gravity such as modified Newtonian dynamics, or MOND, or that Einstein was actually correct with his theory of the cosmological constant, and those who speculated that, depending upon the value of it, that the universe would in fact be expanding. It seems that they were more right than they knew. Not only is there a force that is pushing against gravity and overpowering it, but as the galaxies get farther and farther apart, as the large-scale structure of the universe continues to get spaced apart, gravity has less and less of a pull. And so that expansionary force is making everything move farther and farther away from themselves. And that has incredible implications for the future of our universe. Based on Einstein's theories, astronomers believe that sooner or later, gravity would slow the expansion of the universe down, and it would start to recede, eventually resulting in a big crunch. But at this point, we're really not sure. The universe could end in a big rip, or the heat death, where it just keeps expanding ad infinitum until all stars, all galaxies die out. Now, several other revolutionary changes have happened since the 1990s. Thanks to Hubble, the age of space telescopes began, which began observing the universe in multiple wavelengths, infrared, ultraviolet, gamma rays, x-rays, microwaves, radio waves. And this has allowed the census of galaxies to jump from 200 billion, a full order of magnitude higher, to 2 trillion. On top of that, astronomers have noted several curious phenomena, such as gamma ray bursts and fast radio bursts, that have become mysteries in their own right. What is causing these phenomena? And... By the late 2000s, the Kepler Space Telescope led to a boom in the number of confirmed exoplanets, as we addressed in a previous episode, whereas only a few dozen planets had been confirmed beyond our solar system, right on up into the first decade of the 21st century. Today, that number has jumped to well over 5,000 confirmed planets, with another 10,000 or so awaiting confirmation. And then in 2015... Astrophysicists confirmed, for the very first time, the detection of gravitational waves. 
This was another phenomenon predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity that stated that when massive objects merged together, they created ripples in the fabric of space-time, which could be detected hundreds, thousands, even millions or billions of light-years away. And here, too, since the first confirmed detection, countless events have been picked up and studied and even traced back to their sources, in some cases. And today, astrophysicists are looking forward to space laser interferometers or gravitational wave observatories, which will detect thousands of more events and use these to probe the interiors of stars and many other interesting forms of scientific research, but we'll also be looking for primordial gravitational waves that were caused by the Big Bang. If the Big Bang did, in fact, leave behind relic radiation, and we know it did, the cosmic microwave background, then it would have also have left gravitational waves, which would have traveled the same amount of distance, because, as we know, gravitational waves move at the speed of light, much like gravity itself. So as you can clearly tell just from this relatively brief and topical treatment of the history of cosmology, it's gone through several, several phases. Much like all of our astronomical and astrological systems, many emerged all across the planet. Every single culture that ever existed had its own version. Over time, these merged and influenced each other. And as the era of modern astronomy began to dawn, certain conventions and knowledge became relatively universal. And as our instruments improved and our methods improved, we began to make more and more startling and fascinating discoveries. And at every single interval, these really shook up our previously held notions. The universe as we knew it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's gotten to the point now where we live in a universe that may very well be infinite. We have no way of knowing we can only see so far. And thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope and future observatories, such as Euclid, Nancy Grace Roman, Louvoir, and others, we are finally at a point where we can see back to the very beginnings of time, where we can see galaxies that are within the so-called cosmic dark ages, a period of the universe that is completely invisible in optical light and which also happens to be the period where the first stars and galaxies were born. And what these next-generation telescopes are going to do in the coming years is measure and chart how the universe has evolved over time, how it's expanded and changed from those first galaxies, all created shortly after the Big Bang, to form the large-scale structure of the universe we've become familiar with, and how that has changed itself over time, what its ultimate fate may be. And part of the goal here in conducting these in-depth, but also very, very broad observations is to determine the roles of dark matter and dark energy and confirm at last if they do actually exist or if our physics models are in need of adjustment. So much like the field of quantum mechanics and the study of subatomic particles and how matter behaves on the tiniest of tiny levels, we are looking at how matter behaves on the largest of scales, on the cosmological scale, in the hopes of better understanding how everything works and how it all fits together. And one thing that is especially exciting about that is we really have no idea what we're going to find. But to quote Arthur C. Clarke, the truth, as always, will be stranger than fiction. And like all previous revolutionary discoveries that we've made, they are likely to significantly shake up 
all of our previously held notions. Everything that we thought we knew is going to be challenged and changed. Or not. Only time will tell. Personally, I can't wait to find out. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.